children next door, um, and we do have soundproofing on this store, and that's a mystery in and of itself. <laughs> there's no one over there, and there's children over there, but um, we'll, we won't figure that out today. We'll deal with some other mysteries. Uh, okay, so what we're going to do is I'm, I'm going to use the stage to kind of uh, show you the chronology of time, and we're going to start at Genesis, and you need to be reminded, we need to be reminded of the story and how we got here, and then at some point, we're going to get to where Jesus is, and we're going to see that uh, He's right at the point of the arrow of what God has always been meaning to do, but it hasn't really been clear to anyone just yet. So we go to the beginning, and in the beginning, the Bible says, the first, the first uh, verses in the Bible says, in the beginning, God created uh, if those of you who are artists, creators, the Bible should give you great hope. Uh, you live in, in Perth, and maybe Perth's not the most creative city or the most artistic city, but the Bible says that God is a creator. He's an artist. He, in the beginning, He created all things, and uh, He did this, and the last thing that He created was humanity, us, people, and He made us in His image, and uh, the Scriptures say that uh, everything else was good. God looked at everything that was good, and God looked at humanity and said it was very good. There was something particularly good about the way that He had formed us, and that is that we were made in His image, to be image bearers of God, to walk with God, to walk with one another. We're made for relationship, not just uh, vertically with one, uh, horizontally with one another, but vertically with God. We were made to walk in relationship with God. And that happened in the Genesis garden, uh, and it was fantastic. But Humanity uh, was given this choice, and this is how love works, is that you have to choose your beloved. That, that love can't be love if you never have a choice. If you, if you, if you can't um, pick to love someone, if it's just robotic, it just it can't, kind of is automated, then you would never know that you love something. And so man had the ability, humanity had the ability to walk with God, to choose God, to love God, um, and there was this op other option to kind of reject God, rebel against God, and Satan came into the garden, and he lured Adam and Eve away by saying, God's lying to you. It's not, he's not really telling you the whole truth. What God's really worried about is you becoming like Him. Um, and if you do this, if you go this way, you can be like God. And humanism came into the Garden of Eden. In other words, it wasn't, Satan wasn't... Uh, trying to promote atheism, Satan was just shifting the goal to say, no, um, you can be like God. You can center your life around yourself. You can be God. You can live alongside God. God, God and you can be peers. A kind of a deism came into the Garden of Eden. And so humanity uh, committed spiritual adultery against God and broke that relationship. Well, we move across time just a little bit, and around Genesis 12, you come across a guy named Abram, who later got called Abraham. And uh, God comes to him and he says, the whole world needs to see what I'm like and how I work, and I, I want to give the world a picture of, what it's, of how I'm different to every other God, of, of how, or, or made up God, the kind of small g, how I'm different, how my people are different. And I'm going to make a people out of you, Abraham. I'm going to covenant with you. And I'm going to make uh, a people, and you're going to be a blessing. You're going to multiply, and all the nations are going to see what I'm like. And it's, it was very similar to what God had said to Adam and Eve in the sense of go into all the world, multiply. This is your purpose. This is, your, um, this is why I've made you, is you know, kind of increase. And now he's come to Abraham because that can't happen there. And he says, 
your people, Abraham, you're going to increase into a nation. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. You're going to be a different people. And, and God walks with them in a, in a wonderful way. This nation becomes known as Israel uh, as it grows. And um, they, it goes well sometimes, but there's always this kind of undercurrent drift of Israel walking away from God. Israel committing spiritual adultery. Israel turning to other gods. It's shocking as you read the Bible and you think, you kind of, I would never do these things. But in our own way, we do them all the time. You know, kind of, we look at the Israelites and they turn to some gods where they would sacrifice their, their children to gods and we'd be like, I would, I would never, ever do that. Um, and maybe we don't sacrifice our children in kind of a physical death way. But every day, we're, tempta- we're tempted to put things before God. We turn to other things for our hope. So, and in our culture, maybe it's turning to our children. We, not ki- we can't kill our children because they're our gods. We, we, we worship them. Or other things work. My, you, you, you know all the things. So this is where Israel gets to. And um, there's, a, there's a spiritual adultery. And, and they end up through uh, a wicked plan. The Israelites end up in Egypt. And we're not going to go into how that plan unfolds, but what was meant for evil, God uses for good. Uh, a young man sold into slavery in Egypt, to, to the, ends up in Egypt and eventually rescues a people, his people. And the Israelites find themselves in Egypt. And it's not going too badly for them, actually. They're going quite well. And they're going so well, in fact, that uh, the Pharaoh wants to kind of hinder them from, because what's happening is that they're going so well that they're increasing. They're kind of like these blessed people and they're having so many children and they're increasing out. And uh, Pharaoh realizes that they're, they're, they're kind of getting outnumbered by the Israelites. They get, the Israelites are quite strong. If the Israelites decided to side with one of uh, Egypt's enemies, they really could overpower Egypt and take control. And so they decide, first, first plan is this, let's overwork them. Now, I just want to pause there to go, isn't that an interesting demonic strategy? That's the first level. Let's overwork them. You can go read the story. Because if they overworked, they can't have children and they can't increase and multiply. Or maybe we'd say, now, if they overworked, they can't give them to the, themselves to the things that are truly fruitful. If they're overworked, they can't really pay attention to the things of God and what He's called them to because they just don't have any time left. They don't have any energy left. Right? That, that's the plan. And, and, and I don't know that the enemy changes his plan through the course of time. I think it just changes in different societies. But the plan basically is go, go, let's overwork people, then they can't give attention to what's really meaningful and God is doing. It doesn't work, though. The Israelites keep having children. They keep growing. So then they say, let's oppress them. Let's make them slaves. So instead of just giving them so much work, let's, let's oppress them now. Let's make their lives miserable. <laughs> so now that you're overworked and your, the conditions of your life, your lifestyle, your quality of life has gone, gone backwards. And, and we could probably look around and, and find this kind of thing as well. Where people are enslaved. Choices are taken from them. 
It's kind of a second, second layer. And I, and I don't want to apply everything to our context. This is very real for the Israelites. They're oppressed. The problem is, what do you think happens? More babies. They just keep growing. They're baby-making machines. Their country's still, their, 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 their people are still increasing. They're still getting strong. So it goes to this third level, and Pharaoh says, okay, so what we'll do is we'll get uh, the midwives to uh, kill all the boy babies that are born to the Israelites. And so the midwives are told that all boy babies that are born must be killed. But the midwives say, we refuse to do this. We, we won't do it. They were, they were afraid of, the, of Israel's God. And they said, we, won't, we can't do this. We won't do it. So Pharaoh goes, okay, well, then I'm going to have to um, make it law then. And this is the last level they get to. I'm going to make it a law then that all Jewish boys must be thrown into the Nile. Two years and under kind of thing. So then anyone. I mean, then, you're, then any citizen has got kind of a sheriff's badge. You find a little Jewish boy, you can just chuck him in the night, let him drown. No wonder um, Jews imagine a heaven without many waves and without much water. Water hasn't always been a good thing for them. So can you imagine now living, and, and you, have, you have a child, you have a son, and anyone of the hundreds of thousands of people that sees you can take your child by law and chuck him in the Nile. So this is devastating. This, this is supposed to destroy and maybe not eradicate, but totally weaken the Jews. Here's what happens, though, because what, what Satan intends for evil, God uses for good. So there's this one Jewish mom who gives birth to a little boy, and this little boy is obviously a sweet kid because he mustn't make a lot of noise because she's able to keep him for months without many people knowing. And then the boy starts to grow up, this baby, sorry, he's not, a, he's not, a, he's not beyond his baby months. He, he's still a baby and he gro- he's growing up, but he's getting a little bit noisy as babies do. And if, if you're in this church, you know that babies can get noisy. Um, that's one of the blessings that they bring into our lives. They disturb us. Um, and so this, this little boy is making a noise, and, and that means he's going to get thrown into the Nile. He's going to die. Now, we may say, um, sorry, could the baby just be quiet? I'm trying to preach. Uh, it's very different if it's, please be quiet, you're going to die. Different level, right? And so what she does, she loves this little baby, and she gets a basket, and she covers it in tar, and that's so it's, it's waterproof. And then she puts the baby inside of it, and she puts it on the Nile, and she gets um, her daughter to watch, where does this go? And so she, the baby floats down the Nile, and Pharaoh's own daughter comes out to the waters and finds this baby, takes it out of the water, and is, feels compassion for this child, is moved. And Pharaoh, uh, Moses' sister, this baby's name is Moses, Moses' sister comes to Pharaoh's daughter and says, uh, like, you're busy and you, this isn't your child, so, so you probably don't have the milk uh, ready, ready to supply it. Would you like me to go get one of the Hebrew mums to be its wet nurse? And Pharaoh's daughter goes, that's a great idea. So Moses' sister goes and gets Moses' mum and brings her to daughter, uh, Pharaoh's daughter and says, uh, I, can, I can kind of be the nanny and the wet nurse. And so Pharaoh's daughter gives Moses back to his mom to be fed and raised 
in Pharaoh's palace. And so Moses moves in. And Moses becomes a prince of, of Egypt. You all know the movie. Prince of Egypt because his adopted mum is Pharaoh's daughter, but his raised mum and nurturer is his mum. And so he grows up knowing of God and the things of God, but he also grows under the protection and security of being the prince of Egypt. And a time comes where God says, Moses, I want to take my people out of Egypt. I want to rescue them and free them. I want to liberate them. And obviously Pharaoh doesn't like this because that's become Pharaoh's great workforce. I'm going to free them. Well, then who's going to do all the work? Well, the Egyptians are going to have to do the work. Well, that's no good. They're not going out. And there's this wrestle. You can go read it again. It's a fantastic story of this wrestle between uh, God's power and Satan's power, between good and evil. And, and you kind of wonder, why doesn't God just kind of, boom, just do it in one shot? But it's just this wonderful arm wrestle of God not allowing anything to get in His way and, and kind of opening the hardness of man's heart, showing how evil and wicked we can be. And then, but God always knows, well, eventually he's, he's going to draw a line in the sand. And so He wrestles and He shows and He wrestles and He shows and He wrestles and He shows. And what we see there is that there's no way that the Israelites are going to be freed unless God does something radical on their behalf. There's no way. Pharaoh's not going to go, you know what, actually, you've given us service for many years. Fair's fair. You're gone. He's showing us that the hold on, on humanity is too great. It's too evil. It wants to destroy it, oppress it, use it. It will never let it go. Evil has a tight hold, and God goes, you know, it's, the picture's kind of going, finally, it's been revealed how wicked it is. Now I'm going to come. The battle's over. The arm wrestle's over. It's, you know, it's been child's play. If you arm wrestle a little child, you're like, oh, oh you're going to get me. But then it's like the footy game starting, Josh Kennedy's last game. All right, dunk. <laughs> God goes, okay, it's time. This is what's going to happen. In the evening, all the Israelites are to paint the blood of a lamb over the doorposts of their homes. And you know what? The, some Egyptians could do this too. It, it's not like God's a nationalist and it's only these people. But whoever will put, uh, trust God and believe in God, and the Israelites that don't, they're going to get the same thing any Egyptian uh, that doesn't is going to get. It's going to depend on whether your faith is in what God is saying here, whether you trust God, whether you do what He's, what he's telling you here. The blood of the Lamb... Dip the, some hyssop in it and paint it on your doorpost. And that night an angel is going to come over the land. And wherever there's a home without the blood over the doorpost, the angel is going to enter that land and kill the firstborn son. Well, remember Pharaoh's great tactic. Remember the evil. God comes and they wake up the next morning and there's great grief and mourning of the whole land. Pharaoh couldn't kill Little Moses, God, God, you know, like to show Pharaoh how useless he was potentially, you know, in the sense of, you know, if God doesn't allow it, you can do nothing. While Pharaoh's trying to kill Israelite babies, one is growing up in his home. Then God goes, but watch when I try to do something, nothing can stop it. 
and God moves over the land, and it's a different, it's a different situation, and there's great mourning, uh, great grief in the morning. And they wake up, and the Israelites are free, kicked out. And so they go, and that's why the book is called Exodus, because they exit Egypt, and they go into the wilderness. And the Jews would gather every year to remember that, that, that um, celebration, what God had done, how God had rescued them. What did they call that? The pa- Passover. Why was it called Passover? Because the angel passed over. Now, you don't want to, you don't want to celebrate the came in festival. You want to celebrate the Passover festival. Right? What kind of celebration would come in have been? Yeah, remember when the angel came in and we used to have Johnny, but we don't have Johnny any, any longer. That wouldn't have been a really nice meal, right? What about the Passover? Remember Passover? Remember last year when we were oppressed and enslaved? Remember that night when we put blood on the doorposts and we could hear like thunder the angel coming over and it came closer and closer and the house shook, but then it passed over? Do you remember that? Oh God. And in the morning we woke up and we were all well and healthy and there was grief in the land, but we were freed. Do you remember that? And they'd have, they'd have the feast, they'd have the lamb again, they'd eat it again and they'd have the, uh, the, the, the bread without yeast in it and they'd remember it again and they'd eat it and they'd till their, their children and the years passed on and they told their grandchildren and the years passed on and, and that generation died and they told their children. And the Jews, uh, every year would come together, hundreds and thousands of people coming together into Jerusalem to remember the angel passed over. But at the same time, they were remembering this under Roman rule as we get to Jesus' day. They're, they're not enslaved, they are enslaved, but the Romans are treating them, the Romans are clever. And they're kind of giving them the freedom they need to have to be able to practice their religion, etc., etc., keep the Jews happy. But at the same time, they're taxing them and keeping the Romans happy. So they're kind of, the Romans are clever, they're being political and, and doing well, but, but the Jews aren't free. They're under Roman rule. And they come together, and here's, here's, here's what we get to, is that Jesus comes and He says, in our passage today, He says, uh, go and prepare the Passover. Here, here we, we're at that celebration again. We're at that remembrance again. We're at all of history is been building to a Passover. And Jesus in our passage says, I've longed to have this Passover with you. Not I've looked forward to having the Passover with you. Not I've been hungry and I'm so glad it's Passover. We get to feast and just rest a little bit. I've longed to have this Passover with you. All of history has been waiting for this Passover and Jesus has longed for it. And it's come. It's the tip of the arrow of time. Uh, the, the, the forces of evil in this battle and the forces of good in this battle have come. And this is the tip. This is the Passover. Can you imagine... Satan and his plan, Satan's plan has always been to destroy and eradicate. Destroy and eradicate. Can you imagine how happy he would have got when when God enters the world as a human, Jesus is born. Man, all we have to do is kill one kid and we win. Evil wins. Just destroy Jesus and, and, and 
evil reigns supreme forever. We can destroy and eradicate everything. Everything God has done, we can totally obliterate, eradicate. We can destroy it with evil. This is it. We just need to kill one kid. Take him out. But just like he tried in Egypt, he tried with Jesus. And the law, two boys two years and under, kill him. Herod the Great made a law. Jesus didn't grow up with a lot of kids exactly his age. When Jesus went to school, it looked like a girls' school. It's him and them and Jesus. Where all the boys? Well, they were killed by Herod the Great. Jesus' family got warned and they got out of Dodge. They left. And other families would have left as well. But Jesus was saved because the family got warned about this. Those who stayed, their sons were killed. And throughout Jesus' life, who knows how many times Satan tried to take his life. How many times Satan tried to uh, destroy Jesus. We know in the wilderness, you know, Satan's plan changes. Jesus has 40 days of fasting and prayer, and then Satan comes to him. And at the, by this stage, remember, Satan's not omniscient. He, he's not omnipotent. He doesn't know everything, and he doesn't have all power. He's a created being, so he's limited. He's got to work things out. He's a strategist, smarter than I am, but, but not as smart as God. And so he's working out what Jesus is on about as Jesus grows up and how he's going to do this. He's trying to figure it out. The Bible says in, in 1 Peter that the angels long to look into the gospel. The angels of God don't even know exactly how the gospel is going to unfold. They long to look in it. It's the story they want to be told. How is God going to save his people? So if they don't know and they're God's messengers and workers who, who just love to see it, how it unfolds, then you can be sure that Satan is more clueless. And he's trying to work it out. And by the time Jesus is 30 years old and is in the wilderness, he's starting to figure out that Jesus is on about getting authority and power over all things. That Jesus is redeeming everything. He, he already knows the Old Testament. It's all starting to make sense. And so he offers Jesus for free, I'll give it all to you. What do you want? What do you want? What do you came for? This is it. It's yours. Yeah, it's yours. Only worship me. It's yours. And Jesus counters with a no, using Scripture. But the plan all the time is destroy. If you can get Jesus, this is how simple it is. Get Jesus to steal a little something on the side. Just get him to steal. Just get him to rob. Just get him to be a little bit violent. Just get, just get him to act out wrongly to, to someone in his anger. Just get him to act on, get him to lust and to act out. Just get Jesus to stumble on anything and he would be therefore unable to achieve his goal. Just get him to stumble on, just a little bit, just once. Jesus is the most focused person in his battle against evil and so here comes the Passover Satan's working it out 
doesn't know exactly what God's going to do, but this, this, this great timing and what the Passover was telling us of how God's going to enter creation and work it out for us. So here's what, where we get to. We on the, the stage is set, and Satan goes, okay, this is where we're going to um, destroy him. And it's fa- a fantastic stage because the, all the Jews are here. So we can, we can get him, if we get him here, then, the, then it's hopeless. And Jesus is forgotten. So he gets the leaders. And, and you can put up the slide. He's got kind of this four-part strategy. Number one, there's the leaders. Uh, number two, sorry, there's the leaders. And it's the, the scripture, our scripture t- tells us around verse two, I think, that the priests and the scribes, they were plotting to kill Jesus. Now, we know it's not their plot because it says that they didn't like that there were so many people. The crowds were huge. How were they going to do this? There were so many people in the crowd that were for Jesus. They were team Jesus. So how were they going to do this in secret? They'd much rather try and just do it uh, behind closed curtains. So, but, the, but the opportunity that's going to come to them is right now the, the, at the Passover. And then we get to Judas, who's not a real disciple of Jesus, but he's one of the 12. He's there, and Satan has kind of put him as a spy amongst Jesus. And Satan must have thought he had done pretty good. And, and so if, you've, if you're new to King's Cross, we don't talk a lot about Satan. Um, it just happens that this passage we will. But uh, don't be nervous. Um, our message isn't about what Satan got wrong. Our message is about what God got right. Um, but... He, he's, he's implanted this person, Judas, into Jesus' 12, and he must have thought he's pretty smart. He got one by, by God, by Je- and he's going to use Jesus, and it tells us, uh, Judas, sorry, he, he's going to use Judas, and it tells us that Satan enters Judas. I mean, this is not a job you delegate, right? Now, I don't know what you, what you know and what you believe about um, demon possession and that, it's, it's certainly real, it's certainly evident, and certainly throughout other scriptures. But this is the only time I'm aware of where it's kind of like Satan himself is going to be the one who does the job uh, working in, G- in Judas. So Jesus has freed other, other people who are oppressed by demons and is, you know, the, the legion of demons who go and get put in the pigs and that. But this time, it's Satan himself, the kind of the king gets off his, the king of evil gets off his evil, wicked throne, and he's going to make sure the job is done, and he gets hold of Judas and uh, turns him against Jesus, and, and Judas goes and he sells, and we know Judas has always been about money, he, he carried Jesus' Jesus's money bag, now he's going to sell Jesus, he's going to betray Jesus for a few coins, right? And then there's Satan himself, who's on about destroying and eradicating Jesus and, and His people, or any hope. And Jesus says, Peter, do you know that Satan has been trying to destroy you? And he has tried to sift you out like wheat. Do you, do you know that? There's this cosmic battle that you can't see, Peter. And behind it, Satan, the evil one, has been trying, not only you, Peter, but but all of you, but you especially, Peter, do you know that Satan has been, what he's been trying to do? And you know why it hasn't worked, Peter? Jesus tells us in this passage, because I have prayed for you. 
because of the battle that you can't see has been going on. But I have stood there and I have waged spiritual warfare and I have prayed for you and I've held you. And if I hadn't done that, oh, he would have had his way with you. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is interceding for us. Isn't that, isn't that fantastic? Whatever battle you may be fighting, isn't it good to know that Jesus is praying for you? It's no small thing. My grandma prays for me, and, and I don't know why I think that's cute. Maybe because she's a tiny little lady. I, I know that it's powerful, but, but, I, but to know that Jesus, God, intercedes for me, well, that's powerful. And what we see happening is Jesus chooses the timing. We think it looks like evil's winning. So from this side, evil's coming. It looks like it's going to, it's going to win. It's going to dominate in, in the passage. Jesus even says it's the hour of darkness. It's Satan's hour. And so it looks like, oh, man, you know, this is really going to go down. Jesus is weak. But Jesus has intended every single one of these things to allow his story to unfold and for people to be saved. And we're going to see it happen. But first of all, the Passover. Jesus is going to show how the Exodus was a foreshadow of what he was going to do and how he was going to liberate all people from this, uh, the, the authority and power of sin and death on their lives. The authority that Satan had, the rebellion that humanity had against God, Jesus was going to liberate them. He was going to be the true Passover lamb. And he begins to tell them that at the communion. I've longed for this with you. And as he breaks and has communion with them, he begins to tell them that this is my body. This is my blood. You don't get it yet. But I am the lamb. It's my blood on the doorposts of your hearts that's going to be spread on the cross. It's me that's going to save you. And through my life and death, you're going to be liberated. You're going to be freed. Then there's the leaders. And we think, I mean, these are Israel's leaders. Why are they against God? Why are they against God's man? Why are they against Jesus? Well, because he was getting in their way. Because they wanted a kingdom where they were healthy and wealthy. And Jesus was offering a kingdom where the, where the leaders would serve, where the first would be last, where the last would be first, where we'd have to have faith like children. And so he says to his disciples in our passage, he says, you are going to be my leaders in the kingdom. He's taken the power away from that. He's taken the endorsement away. No longer are these Pharisees and scribes and that seen as the leaders of my people. Now you will. My kingdom is coming and you are going to be the judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. In Nass read to us. He's putting a new leadership team in place. Amazing. He's undoing this and, and redoing this. What Satan intend, uh, said for evil, like, these guys are going to kill Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, don't worry, they're not going to, they, they, I mean, they're going to get that right, but they're not going to achieve what they want. And then when my kingdom comes, you're going to be the new leaders for all eternity, of the, and you're going to judge the 12 tribes uh, in my kingdom. Okay, wow. What about Judas? Jesus sits there in the meal, Judas has done this thing in secret. He's kept it a secret for years. Jesus, is, Jesus doesn't have a clue. Uh, Satan must have got this thing right. 
coins have been exchanged, a kiss is going to be dealt next week, and Jesus comes and says, out of nowhere, one of you are going to betray me. What? Judas must have sat there going, oh my gosh. How does he know? He wouldn't have shared it with any of the other 11. No one would have whispered it to Jesus because then he could have got out. And how does he know? He knows because he's Jesus, because Judas is playing into his plan, because Judas is only doing what Jesus needs him to do. And he identifies the one whose hand is in the bowl with me. It's you. And then he endorses this, go and do what is in your heart to do. So even Judas doesn't, what, God, what, what Satan intends for evil, God's going to use it for good. And then we get Satan himself. And I've already explained to you how Satan has this intention to destroy and eradicate. And Satan tells us about it. It's not just Judas that, he's, that he uses. He, he tries. He, he, he prays against God's people. He's trying to get rid of Peter. But Jesus prays. Jesus stands in the gap. We are here because Jesus stands in the gap. We stand because Jesus intercedes for us. We continue on. We have hope. We will hold together because Jesus stands for us. Jesus prays for us. Jesus intercedes for us. The scriptures say that He is the author of our salvation and He will bring it to an end. And all of this comes to a point in the garden where the last decision has to be made whether Jesus will do it or not. His life has been sought since His birth. Satan has tried to destroy Him since He was born. Every day of his life, all, of, all evil powers were poised against him, stumbling and challenging. There wasn't a place Jesus could go. There wasn't a message he could give without some sort of evil uh, challenge, hurdle, pushback. But this moment was different. If you imagine this battle between evil and good, then you can imagine that almost everywhere else in the world, there would have been this strange kind of peace in the atmosphere. Why? Because in this garden, on this night, all of evil focused in. This is the moment all of history has come to. If we can make him stumble at this point, we win. It's like, I don't know if you've ever gone deep underwater, but the deeper you go, the more the pressure comes on, on you or in you. I don't really know how pressure works. It's just not nice. Like your ears hurt and it's just it's not comfortable and your chest feels like you can't breathe. You can't breathe because you're underwater, but you know what I mean. <laughs> got, the pressure, the, the, the thickness in the atmosphere, the darkness closing in. I remember be, uh, being in Fremantle and walking into a coffee shop it would have looked strange because I walked in like this and I walked like that and I went like that and just walked out. Because as I walked into the door, I felt a dark presence that, that made my hair stand up. And I just turned around and walked straight back out. It's like, I, I don't need, not, not today, Satan. I don't need that coffee. 
but to be honest, I got coffee down the road. Um, I've been back to the coffee shop before and, and have felt nothing. Just that day, can you imagine Jesus? The pressure, the forces against him, all principalities and powers. If we get him in this night, and he's on his knees, and his sweat beads like blood of sweat are starting to build. He hasn't gone for a jog or a cycle. He's just praying, and his body is sweating with anxiety and worry, and this, the spiritual fight, this battle. And this moment comes, it would be the climatic moment at the end of a Star Wars film, and this is where, where we get cut off today. But this moment comes where in this darkness, even the, even the disciples, isn't it interesting how, why the disciples fell asleep? They didn't fall asleep because they didn't love Jesus. They didn't fall asleep because they didn't trust Jesus. They didn't fall asleep because they devalued prayer. They fell asleep, it says, because they were exhausted. The darkness had worn them out. They could feel it. They could sense it. They were around it. And it's exhausting. And it's not even, they're just in the atmosphere of it. It's all directed at Jesus. And he gets on his knees. Why don't you close your eyes and hear him pray? Father, if you are willing, Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God, we thank you for those words. It's very unlikely that the world would be any more if Jesus hadn't prayed those words and meant them. And if Jesus hadn't determined at the point of that arrow where Satan saw how unlikely it would be that God would use all his wrath against his son Yet you, Jesus, accepted it. The weight of all evil pressing upon you, strengthened you set your mind on salvation. You determined that night that we wouldn't be destroyed and eradicated, but that we would be saved and redeemed. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done.